You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. I thought I'd talk a bit about uh, Neil Gorsuch and the Trump nomination uh, for Supreme Court in the context of what I've studied before regarding history and politics. And often I do talk about the court. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a constitutional law scholar, though I do follow writings in those places, and I do read Supreme Court decisions and oral arguments from time to time when I'm zeroing down into topics. Believe it or not, most Supreme Court decisions are easier to read than you might expect, and most oral arguments, not all, but most Supreme Court oral arguments, and many are available at oyez.com, O-Y-E-Z.com, are easier to understand and get uh, than you might think. Some of the real technical cases or cases involving some corporate or business matters, if you're not in that industry, could get a little complicated. But I'm always surprised by you know listening to the banter between the judges and the lawyers, and you can kind of understand it. So uh, Neil Gorsuch has been nominated by President Trump, and um, I think the first thing to understand, and this is a lot of the narrative around it, is that uh, Neil Gorsuch is seen as a kind of Scalia heir, uh, in particularly in that he is an advocate of Scalia's textualism. That is where you use the text of the statute, text of the law as written, as people reasonably... Voting for it would have understood it, and what do those words mean, and also apply any kind of traditional understandings at the time, traditions, beliefs at the time, and interpret the law that way. Not interpreting the law in a sense, this is a very simplified way of describing it, as to what is the best way that we should rule this decision, or what is the best way that uh, what is the best thing for society if we move forward with this decision. And I think a a big change in law occurred with the Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954 with Justice Earl Warren, Chief Justice, who had come from being governor of California, a very popular politician, and not really um, from a significant legal background, used social science, used UN declarations, used the situation in the country, the situation facing uh, black students to craft a decision in born in Brown versus the Board of Education. And it was a step away from uh, a legal precedent. There isn't really a lot of legal precedent cited 
in Brown versus the Board of Education, it could be summed up as we must do this because we must do this. You know, we must rule this way because we must. And it was really a political job of persuading the justices, most were for it anyway and wanted to rule um, for uh, Brown uh, against the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. But there were a few that had to be persuaded. And he got a unanimous court to do that. Now, that is not to say that someone like uh, the Scalia would have been against it at that time. Or, or one, one anticipates that he might have been a little grumpy. But I really don't ab- about it because it wasn't a textual type decision. I really don't want to take characters out of their place and time and their role in time. And, you know, if you've, you've put someone like that back in that time in 1954, you might have had a different feeling about it or found some textual basis to rule the way he did. But then the law moved certainly under Chief Justice Warren's uh, tenure to more of a, an interpretation of what is the best role of the court system in enhancing individual rights. How do we interpret laws best for the citizen and the individual person and that uh, major criminal cases and civil rights cases? You know, the, the court changed its approach. In the 70s, you started to see some recoiling. Us certainly under uh, Rehnquist, who wasn't a textualist, but had some of those elements. Uh, you saw a bit of a recoil from that. Bakke was an attempt to roll back, perhaps, some of the um, civil rights cases involving education, uh, this involving a medical school in California, and an applicant who was white who was denied, not based on his scores, but based on his race. So there's a little bit of a rollback. And then you saw continued rollbacks without eliminating race at all. There were there were rollbacks in cases in the 2000s involving law school applications and parents versus Seattle in 2007, where the majority said that race must be taken out of the equation. You can't arrange the town of Seattle by a school system, by the race of the children living in it. So all of these were significant steps back. I think there's a question for anyone looking at it. First of all, you know, on one side of things, you either love Gorsuch or uh, if you're a Democrat right now, you're, you're bitter over the president not getting his choice in Merrick Garland. So there's this kind of like, anger over that, and that's the first debatable issue, which I side with. I mean, I do believe that President Obama's nominee should have gotten a up or down vote. Uh, what probably would have happened is it would have been a down vote. He would have nominated someone else. There would have been another down vote, and you would have gotten to this point anyway. But I do think that political exercise might have had an impact on the election, and it was avoided through a unseemly political process of simply not voting for a whole year in a president's nominee. So certainly not in favor of that. But there's still the reality that there's a Supreme Court nominee nominated by a president, and so everybody's kind of uh, either bitter one way or just like Gorsuch because he's been called a conservative and that kind of thing. So not really looking at it. So I thought I'd do a little bit. It's very difficult to really look at a whole man's career. But looking at some of the cases and what we can expect here. And it might be tempting to think that, oh, actually, everyone's saying he'll be just like Scalia, but he's not. Uh, and sometimes you analyze something and it does conform with the narrative. And, and, it, and it really is true. Heir to Scalia, Gorsuch is. 
In fact, there's a uh, very good speech. Case uh, Western University gave him an opportunity to speak about Scalia, and he spoke in glowing terms, of course, as after the death of Scalia, so that part's not surprising, but really attacked the issue of interpreting the law any other way but by its text itself, okay? He salutes in that lecture how, uh, as, as Judge Scalia put it, if you're going to be a good and faithful judge, you have to resign yourself to the fact that you're not always going to like the conclusions you reach. If, if you like them all the time, you're probably doing something wrong. He notes how even Justice Elena Kagan said in a Scalia lecture at Harvard Law School, we're all textualists now. We used to approach reading a statute with the question, gosh, what should this statute be, rather than what do the words on the paper say? So I think you certainly have an argument here that, uh, it's not even an argument, that Gorsuch is a textualist just like Scalia. And he's also, unlike um, even Thomas, unlike Alito, and uh, certainly unlike Kennedy or Roberts, He's going to be an advocate for that type of approach, and he, you're probably going to see it in more decisions because he's really an advocate of that approach rather than just being a justice that's conservative. To me, an assiduous focus on, te- uh, to me, an assiduous focus on text, structure, and history is essential to the proper exercise of the judicial function. That, yes, justices should be in the business of declaring what the law is using the traditional tools or interpretation rather than pronouncing the law as they might wish it to be in light of their own political views, always with an eye on the outcome, and engage perhaps in some Bethamite calculation of pleasures and pains along the way. Though the critics are loud and the temptation to join them may be many, mark me down too as a believer that the traditional account of the judicial role Justice Scalia defended will endure. First of all, I always do believe there's a little bit of straw manning uh, when textualists attack the kind of living document of the Constitution as if, you know, justices who see things that way are kind of doing a needlework and creating their own Constitution. And I don't really think that's fair to the method of interpretation that, that, that works that way. I think that... Um, Justices are first and foremost always interpreting the words of the Constitution, but those words are necessarily vague both in what the words mean and also how to apply them to the case before it. If they were not, it would have been decided by a lesser court. Another criticism, and this is why I think textualists aren't well-liked by progressives, is that textualism in and of itself is going to produce always a more conservative law because it harkens back to a past time and the constitution was written you know in the 18th century and certainly we have different views now so if all you're going to look at are the words on the page it's going to require legislatures and congress to constantly be updating law for every situation for progressive change to happen as opposed to simply saying well We've got these words on a paper, like, for instance, cruel and unusual punishment. Now, if we were to go back and see what those gentlemen understood cruel and unusual punishments to be, well, the death penalty may not be in that realm at all, because there were certainly people who were aware that, uh, you know, if you did something wrong, uh, death could be something that you might be subjected to 
by crown or state authorities. Um, we're in the 21st century now, and while the death penalty is still around in some states, how you do it, all right, is seen as something different. Like hanging, for instance, would not be permitted in any state in the union. So, it did. It, I think sometimes there's a straw man there that the document changed. The, the judges didn't change the document. Circumstances changed. But the the situation changed, and expecting that law will be written or amendments will be passed when the amendment process is very arduous for every little situation is unreasonable. That's an argument against it. But no doubt that uh, Neil Gorsuch is somebody who's going to try to interpret the words on the paper versus thinking what is the best for society, let's say, in ruling this decision. Now, Is that ever positive? And I think there's a few situations where that's positive, and this is where Gorsuch and Scalia are going to share some things. And for instance, Scalia, and this was forgotten, is one of the justices who joined on the decision that it would, you had a constitutional right to burn the American flag. He said he abhorred his own decision, of course. But the words in the paper, the First Amendment, are very clear. And the flag didn't enjoy any kind of special protection, and if it if anyone wanted it to, they have to pass an amendment. And you know, it came close to like flag burning, burning amendments passing. So on certain civil liberties issues, you had Scalia. Uh, he was on certain Fourth Amendment cases. There was a recent case where police were using a scanner to look at someone's front yard. And that did not sit well with Scalia. You know, and police have to knock and enter and, and, and respect that. Uh, home is castle type thing. Might be different about a car, but with a home, he, he didn't like that. And there's several cases where you got Scalia on some of these things. That's because that's where textualism helps you, since there are specific rights in the Bill of Rights. A textualist is on your side. The reason, though, you didn't see more coverage of it, and it was probably a little unfair to, to Scalia's legacy that he was kind of a defender of civil liberties is that so were so many other justices, right? So those cases don't get a lot of attention because these are popular views anyway. So the textualists do offer you, I think, in some cases, really good protection on some of your fundamental Bill of Rights issues. But, you know, these are things that are broadly popular anyway, where people often need help, minorities often need help, or obscure rules being used against them. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. 
We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, He had a case in the Tenth Circuit, uh, United States versus Game Perez, where he, uh, his opinion was, this is where a defendant got tripped up in a gun law where he was a felon, but the the felony was a a small crime, and the defendant claimed that he wasn't even aware it was a felony. And many felonies, you know, people do know jail time. So laws that then say if you're a felon, you can't possess a gun. Um, This really wasn't about the Second Amendment or about guns as much as it was an issue of crime. And one of the things Gorsuch, in this case at least, says that he's against is – Laws where defendants are going to get tripped up uh, too easily, and it's not clear that they knowingly committed a crime, you know. And so, um, again, these are areas where there's a little bit, uh, not as much focus on the on the the good that the textualists do. Textualists are also going to tend to be strong supporters of the practice of religion since it's so clearly uh, mentioned in the in the first amendment and so gorsuch certainly fits in this category even extending it to corporations or private uh, closely held corporations so the hobby lobby decision where the hobby lobby company did not want to provide for contraception for their employees because of their religious beliefs and gorsuch in that decision was probably his most famous one so far ruled that uh, a company that's a closely held public company, and not IBM, would be able to practice their religious beliefs, would would receive protection from the Constitution in the practice of their religious beliefs relating to their employees. Now, I mean, it's pretty easy to criticize that decision. Hobby Lobby has 600 stores. You know, it's not a little uh, deli on the corner. Um where you could make the case that the corporation's the same as the family. Here it's a family or tightly held corporation of religious people that has 600 stores all around the country. And their policy is affecting lots of employees who may not share their religious beliefs but entered an employment contract with them. But their employment contract is now you know, potentially disrupting the kind of health care they can get and use, and pay for. So, you see where he is on that side of thing. On the other hand, and he brought this up, he was also for a case where a Native American was in prison, and the prison had not adequately provided for his religious beliefs, including uh, going to a particular religious place to observe his religion. And uh, so, he was also for that and ruled against the state. So, you know, there's a tendency to think that conservatives always rule for the state. I'll give you another example. Um, one of the things textualists like Scalia and Gorsuch are against the dormant comma, commerce clause, and this is a little confusing, but basically it's a presumption that there's a limitation on the power of states to make laws regulating interstate commerce. 
that since the federal government has interstate commerce power, states, in effect, shouldn't really be burdensome. And also because of the modern situation with the type of mail order and internet and and trucking and all sorts of interstate commerce that goes on, states shouldn't be too burdensome. Scalia didn't like it. Gorsuch doesn't like it either. Scalia clearly said in one case, the problem with the dormant commerce clause is that there's no dormant commerce clause in the Constitution. Yet it's a precedent of legal practice over the years. This is another thing about textualists. And in doing the textualism, they, in effect, even though they're not going to say that this is what they're doing, get around some legal precedent that has been practiced and get around stare decisis because they're, in effect, introducing a new theory, even though the theory's so defensible and seems so sacred. I'm just listening to the laws as it's written on the paper They're avoiding all of this precedent, which is the way the Supreme Court has made its decisions in the past. So the Dormant Commerce Clause comes from precedent. You may not like it, but it comes from precedent. Um, This isn't always bad for, say, a progressive, and this is one of the things to understand. Um, For instance, Gorsuch in a case in in Colorado, Colorado was establishing a clean air agency, a clean air regulation, and a company sued based on the dormant commerce clause. It really a state shouldn't be that burdensome and regulating the free market for energy. So Gorsuch decided in favor of the state of Colorado for the same reason Scalia did, that there is no dormant commerce clause. This gets a little confusing, but I think the thing to understand is that To be fair, when I say that Scalia or Gorsuch don't like the Dormant Commerce Clause, that's not the way that either of them, he would have described it or Gorsuch will describe it. It's not that they don't like it. They'll just say the language isn't there. If you want to pass one, the Congress needs to pass a Dormant Commerce Clause. So in that case, it ended up being a fairly progressive issue, energy, um, the regulation of the environment and energy was actually supported by Gorsuch because of his uh, textualism. So it's it's not always so clear, although I gave you the tendencies that usually textualism leads to a more conservative. Gorsuch is against social optimizing in the part of judges. This is what uh, Judge Posner, Richard Posner, said. American appellate courts are councils of wise elders, And it's not completely insane to entrust them with the responsibility for deciding cases in a way that will produce the best results for society. Well, Gorsuch replies, uh, respectfully, that's not even a ringing endorsement of judges as social utility optimizers. Um, And he says it's crazy not to worry that if judges consider themselves free to disregard the Constitution's separation of powers, they might soon find other bothersome parts of the Constitution unworthy of their fidelity. Judges shouldn't be social optimizers, right? Judges should not decide a case by what's best for society. This will run him right at odds with somebody like Kennedy, to a limited extent Roberts, and certainly the Democratic-appointed justices on the Supreme Court who do consider how they're going to rule and what happens to, to American life after they make their ruling. This brings up another point that I'm not sure people are aware of. Gorsuch 
was Kennedy's law clerk in the past um, for a couple of years. So he knows Kennedy well. This is important because Kennedy's often seen as the swing vote on the Supreme Court. So you have somebody who has a relationship. That's not such a big deal. I mean, a lot of the justices know each other. Uh, so that's not really a big deal. Many times, previous clerks, you know, Roberts was a clerk for Reinquist, and he replaced Reinquist as chief justice. So the, this happens often. That's not such a big deal. But it's an interesting dynamic on the court to think about. Kennedy often is the swing vote. Uh, certainly, if you look at abortion cases, Kennedy has been the pin that's kind of holding things there uh, for the pro-choice for pro-choice law in the United States. Now, Scalia was often trying to argue with Kennedy about this and many other issues, try to sway Kennedy. And sometimes he would on guns, on on other issues. You know, you saw Kennedy vote with uh, what we might call, I don't like this terminology, but the Republican-appointed majority. But... Um, that's to be considered, too, is, is not only like how a justice is going to rule, but how are they going to be in persuading people? Are they good persuaders? Scalia sometimes was abrasive. And if you read uh, Jeremy Tubin's The Nine, he gets into a lot of detail about how Scalia might be responsible for Sandra Day O'Connor holding the stare decisis and holding on um, the pro-choice decisions on the court. Because Scalia was just so abrasive, he just got at people. And and he, he was nasty in some of his dissents, even at the other justices. So here you have a difference. Neil Gorsuch has the same philosophy as Scalia, but is nicer. Is that good or bad? I kind of enjoyed reading some of Scalia's decisions. A lot of people did. Gorsuch actually writes in a kind of good style, by the way, but very easy to understand, very clear. When, you, when you're reading one of his decisions, at least a few that I've read, I can't admit I read all of them, but... It really is just like reading someone writing an essay, a very well-structured, lots of segues. Okay, so now I'm going to talk about this. Very, very helpful, very clear and easy to read. Scalia had that kind of quality too, whether you agreed with him or not. But he was very abrasive, so Gorsuch isn't going to be. Well, there's two schools of thoughts on that. I mean, one is that I see these justices go at it, or I hear these justices go at it in um, you know oral argument, I mean, and then... You got to be kind of tough, or if you, you're not going to get your opinion heard, and then you're not going to sway Kennedy with an oral argument because um, getting the lawyers to answer the right questions that Kennedy might be worried about, or Roberts now might be worried about, because you're not forceful enough. And um, Thomas doesn't ask questions in these. Alito asks a lot of questions. Roberts once in a while. Kennedy waits for everybody else, and it's uh, it's like the Kagan and Sotomayor show on some of these oral arguments in the beginning. And they're just, um, Kagan particularly asks a lot of questions. So you got to be kind of forceful. Um, you got to be forceful with the lawyers to get the right arguments out of them. And so he's a little bit more laid back, and that, that might be good in some ways. George Will was um, arguing that um, he's not Scalia because he's not Scalia, right? Part of being Scalia it was who Scalia was, not just that you have his... Um, philosophy. So that will be an interesting thing to watch in the court. Everybody everybody thinks of it like a little mini Congress. So here's a, a bunch of votes. But it's not how it is. It's also about how forceful you are, how good of a legal mind you are, how good at finding arguments and finding precedent you are. 
asking the lawyers the right questions and swaying the other members of the court. I believe it was Brian White. Uh, I believe it was Byron White who said, what do you need to get a court decision in the Supreme Court? And he held up his hand and said, five votes. So it can be a very a body that's very subject to persuasion. They're talking all the time. Their staff are talking. The clerks are talking all the time. You're going to join on this decision. What do you think? What do you think? It's not a, a it's not a political theater. Even though sometimes when they announce the decisions, they make a big brouhaha about it. So those are all the kind of things that I think you should look at in in evaluating uh, what we got here with Gorsuch. I mean, looks like it's going to happen one way or the other, whether a filibuster. Um, on the Supreme Court justice survives or not. Thanks for listening. And thanks for subscribing to the premium podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.